Good morning. Um, and welcome to the eighth annual Cato Summit on Financial Regulation. I'm Jennifer Schulp, the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Our conference's title, The Rise of ESG and the Future of Financial Regulation, has set us a rather ambitious agenda for the day. Environmental, social, and governance, the rather awkwardly phrased collection of words, has captured the attention of the investment world. ESG-friendly investments, or those that market themselves as such, have received strong inflows in recent years, and corporations have found themselves the subject of an ongoing debate about whether their responsibility is to their shareholders alone or also to other stakeholders, and what that responsibility even means. In fact, what does ESG even mean? Will it leave a lasting mark on financial regulation? And should it? We have a full day devoted to these questions, beginning with a keynote address from SEC Commissioner Mark Ueda, followed by expert panels addressing ESG and systemic risk, corporate governance, and investing. And we'll close out the day with a fireside chat with Professor Aswath Demoterin, known as the Dean of Valuation. We're excited to have you join us for these thoughtful discussions. Throughout the day, we'll be taking questions from our audience here in person and online. To submit an online question, please use the hashtag CatoEcon on social media or the question box on our website. So let's get this program started. We're honored to have SEC Commissioner Mark Ueda here with us today. Commissioner Ueda was sworn into office on June 30th, 2022. He has a deep knowledge of securities laws, having been on the SEC's staff in a variety of capacities since 2006. He served as counsel to three prior commissioners, as staff in the SEC's Division of Investment Management, and on detail to, among other places, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. It is my pleasure to introduce SEC Commissioner Mark Ueda. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so great to see everyone here. Uh, glad to be doing this in person. Uh, so, uh, but to those of you who are participating virtually, uh, thank you also very much. Uh, thank you, Jennifer, for that kind introduction. Uh, I appreciate being part of your conference focusing on the rise of environmental, social, and governance investing and the future of financial regulation. The conference raises a number of important questions, such as what is ESG? What role should ESG play in investment decisions? And should ESG be considered in assessing financial stability? As you consider these issues, I wanted to share a few of my thoughts that reflect my individual views as a commissioner and not necessarily the, uh, the views of the full commission or my fellow commissioners. First, let's discuss ESG and sustainability. But I'm not referring to ESG and sustainability as interchangeable terms. Rather, the terms are meant to ask whether ESG investing in its current form is itself sustainable. The asset management industry has excelled in recent years in attracting fund flows to ESG-themed investment products. Whether these trends can be sustained over the long run is an open question, especially if many ESG funds are essentially plays on overweighting the technology sector and underweighting the energy sector. Meanwhile, on the corporate disclosure side, 
it is appropriate to inquire whether any specific E, S, or G factor will remain relevant in the future. When evaluating whether any activity can be maintained, one should think about the whether the long-term benefits outweigh the costs. For instance, the financial impact on enterprise valuations for various factors in the G category, such as the use of dual-class stock or classified boards of directors, have been known for a long time. However, for ESG as a whole, whether there is a net benefit may be difficult to evaluate because interested persons may not agree on what particular factors constitute ESG, much less how much weight each factor should be given. For example, the Commission has a pending stock buyback rulemaking proposal. Should that disclosure be considered a G factor? Or is it an S factor? Or both? Or neither? Reasonable persons can reach different conclusions. Not surprisingly, one need look no further than the so-called ESG rating agencies, whose evaluations reflect widespread disagreement. A recent study by professors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of Zurich found that the average correlation among six prominent ESG rating agencies to be 54%, compared to 99% correlation among credit rating agencies. This study showed that the divergence in ESG ratings was due mostly to how rating agencies measure company data, followed by the difference in the attributes assessed and the weighting of those attributes. One should not necessarily view the lack of correlation as a bad thing. To the contrary, it could simply reflect that ESG factors are so individualistic, it is difficult to consistently calibrate ESG on a uniform basis. Despite these disagreements on what constitutes ESG, one aspect seems certain. There will be increased costs, and these costs will be ultimately borne by investors. As an example, one should look at the estimated costs associated with the Commission's proposed climate-related disclosure. In its March 2022 proposal, the Commission estimated that the total existing external cost burden on companies to register their offerings on Form S-1 and file their annual reports on Form 10-K was a little more than $2 billion. The Commission then estimated that the marginal increase from the proposed climate disclosures alone would nearly triple these costs to over $6.3 billion. Now, these estimates were based on the assumption that the cost for external legal advice was $400 an hour, an amount that has remained flat since 2006. Now, recently, the SEC adjusted the assumed cost to $600 per hour, and even this revision may be too low. But even with this $600 assumption, the total estimated external cost quadruples now to $8.4 billion. One aspect of the cost for ESG that may differ from the costs associated with other disclosure rules is the potential difficulty for companies to achieve cost efficiencies or economies of scale in preparing ESG disclosures. In the climate-related disclosure proposal, the SEC assumed that compliance costs may decrease after the first year. This assumption may or may not be true. The SEC's proposal permits the use of reasonable estimates, but in the future, technology may be developed, allowing for more precise capture of greenhouse gas emissions 
that may entail additional costs. Furthermore, companies may have costs arising from other ESG obligations. Today, some persons, including non-investor ESG stakeholders, are focused on climate and greenhouse gas emissions. However, in the next few years, the focus could shift to other disclosures, such as water-related metrics or other topics that are not currently contemplated. This ever-changing focus of ESG, when combined with a lack of consensus on what constitutes ESG, could make it difficult for companies to decrease compliance costs over time. Unlike costs, which can be measured and quantified to some degree, the benefits of ESG investing can be more difficult to quantify. Even when quantifiable, the results are mixed. A study by two Vanguard investment strategists concluded that ESG funds have neither systematically higher nor systematically lower raw returns or risk than the broader markets. In contrast, a study by a sustainability data firm found that funds weighted towards companies with positive ESG scores outperformed the unweighted benchmark. However, focusing on, on the portfolio consisting of North American companies, the excess returns were only 17 basis points. Further, when broken down by the E, S, and G categories, portfolios with strong governance met metrics outperformed the benchmark by the most at 0.70%, followed by portfolios with strong environmental metrics at 0.28%. In contrast, portfolios with strong social metrics underperformed the benchmark by 1.29%. The uncertainty of benefits associated with ESG investing combined with the certainty of costs for companies undertaking ESG activities should motivate all market participants, whether public companies, investors, or asset managers, to question whether the ESG trend itself is sustainable over the long term. But as a starting point, it could be useful to define exactly what is ESG. Otherwise, it is difficult to implement a disclosure regime that is consistent, comparable, and decision useful when ESG factors and weightings are all in the eye of the beholder. One aspect of ESG investing, which is employed even with respect to certain non-ESG-themed funds, is the idea of stewardship and engagement by asset managers with public companies. Specifically, some asset managers conduct extensive stewardship activities even when their funds are marketed as passive or index-tracking investments. Companies often engage with these asset managers because of the influence and leverage that asset managers can have, as the funds advised by the asset managers hold the company's voting securities. In the SEC regulatory regime, these asset managers are said to have beneficial ownership of the company's voting securities because they have the power to vote or to direct the voting of such securities. If that beneficial ownership exceeds 5%, then asset managers are publicly required, uh, are required to publicly report their ownership. Congress created this reporting regime in 1968 to provide information to the public and the subject company about accumulations of its equity securities in the hands of persons who would then have the potential to change or influence control of the issuer. Initially, all persons beneficially owning more than 5% of a public company were required to report their ownership on a Schedule 13D. 
1977, pursuant to its rulemaking authority, the SEC began permitting certain categories of institutional investors to report their ownership on a shorter form. This form, initially called Schedule 13D-5 and now called Schedule 13G, requires less disclosure about the beneficial owner, is less costly to prepare, does not need to be initially filed as quickly, and does not need to be updated as frequently when compared to Schedule 13D. Asset managers registered with the SEC under the Investment Advisors Act are permitted to report on Schedule 13D if they satisfy two conditions. First, they must have acquired the securities in the ordinary course of business. And second, and more importantly, they must not, not have acquired and do not hold the securities with the purpose or effect of changing or influencing the control of the issuer of the securities or in connection with or as a participant in any transaction having such purpose or effect. While there are not precise statistics comparing asset managers' use of Schedule 13D versus 13G, my observation is that the asset managers responsible for the largest mutual fund and ETF complexes nearly all report on the latter, Schedule 13G, implying that they believe both of these conditions have been satisfied. In reviewing any large asset manager's stewardship website, however, mentions of ESG stewardship seem ubiquitous, from voting guidelines to engagement statistics. The information on these websites often document how the asset manager establishes expectations for ESG matters, engages with companies that aren't meeting its expectations, and how they may vote against one or more of the incumbent directors if those companies do not continue to meet their expectations. For example, an asset manager publicly disclosed a case study where, following a multi-year engagement, it voted against the director of a public company who also chaired the board committee overseeing ESG matters because the company failed to disclose its forward-looking greenhouse gas reduction targets. This is one of many instances in which an asset manager did not support the election of a director on the basis of climate-related issues. The set, now, the second condition for Schedule 13G el eligibility requires that the asset manager must not have control intent with respect to the company. So with respect to stewardship, does an asset manager truly lack control intent? The SEC staff has provided guidance that an asset manager's engagement with a company's management on issues of social or public interest, including environmental policies, without more would not preclude the asset manager from filing on Schedule 13G, so long as the engagement is not undertaken with the purpose or effect of changing or influencing control of the company. However, this guidance does not answer that question. The guidance merely reiterates that the asset manager cannot take any action with the purpose of changing or influencing control. So if an asset manager develops ESG policies, meets with companies to discuss how they are not following such policies, and then votes against the directors because the company's ESG practices do not match the asset manager's policies and expectations, then has the asset manager done simply more than engage? Furthermore, the staff guidance is based on statements made in the Commission's 1998 release 
adopting amendments to Regulation 13DG. However, a very important change in corporate governance has occurred since then. In 1998, most board directors were elected by a plurality vote, and proxy cards generally contain the voting choices of for or withhold. Thus, the receipt of a single four vote was sufficient to elect a director. Today, in contrast, a significant number of public companies have adopted some form of majority voting provisions in uncontested elections. And directors may not be elected or seated into office if they receive more against votes than for votes. Thus, the consequences of a company's engagement with asset managers are very different today than in 1998, as an asset manager's voting decisions can be much more consequential. Now, with respect to the key part here, has an asset manager's engagement been done with the purpose or effect of changing or influencing control of the company? Now, the SEC has a definition for control under the Securities Exchange Act, which means the power to direct or cause the direction of management and policies of a company. A company's ESG practices can include, among other things, its ESG strategy and goals. The timeline on which to execute those, that strategy and goals. How much resources to dedicate to achieving such goals. And how much voluntary disclosure it provides with respect to the foregoing. All of these activities might be reasonably considered to be part of the management and policies of a company. A company's board, particularly the board members on a committee overseeing ESG matters, may have the power to direct or cause the direction of the company's ESG practices. So, can an asset, management's, asset manager's stewardship and engagement activities, with the implicit threat of voting against a director standing for re-election, be described as having the purpose or effect of changing or influencing control of the company? In my view, that's an open question. Now, even if an asset manager is determined not to have control intent and therefore eligible to use Schedule 13G, the Commission should consider whether additional and more timely disclosures of the asset manager's discussions with a company and its management and voting intent should be required, either on Schedule 13G or elsewhere. The SEC has a rule, Regulation FD, which regulates the disclosure by a public company of non, material non-public information provided by, by the company to its investors, including asset managers. However, other than with respect to Schedule 13D, there's no requirement that a large asset manager beneficially owning more than 5% of a company's voting securities, that it has to disclose its communications to the company including its demands and, and, and requests with respect to ESG matters. To the extent that asset managers are not required to file on Schedule 13D, this dichotomy in disclosure obligations between a company and an asset manager seems at odds with a disclosure regime aimed at providing material information to all shareholders. Another way to look at this issue is to consider a traditional activist shareholder that develops a financial model showing that a company would create more value for its shareholders by spinning off a business unit. That activist shareholder 
then approaches the company with its idea and suggests that it would vote against one or more of the incumbent directors if the company does not carry out this idea. If the activist shareholder beneficially owns more than 5% of the company's voting securities, then it would generally be expected to file a Schedule 13D and disclose its discussions with management. Thus, why should the conclusion be different when it is, involves an asset manager for a large mutual fund or ETF complex and the idea involves ESG instead of a spinoff? So to conclude, ESG has been tre a trending topic for the past several years. As with any new trend, market participants should evaluate how their activities within this space are consistent with their legal obligations, including any applicable fiduciary duties. Additionally, the Commission should consider whether current rules capture the activities and behavior associated with this new trend, particularly with the efforts of significant shareholders to change or influence the management and policies of public companies. If so, the, com the Commission should enforce these rules. And if not, the co Commission should evaluate whether an update to those rules is needed. So thank you very much for giving me part of your morning to let me explain some of my thoughts. I hope you enjoyed the rest of today's conference. And I think uh, we've got some time for some questions. Yeah, we do have some time for questions. Uh, we'll be taking questions in the audience. Just raise your hand. And if you're online, remember, put a question in the box or hashtag CatoEcon. Um, we can start right here. Well, thank you, thank you, Commissioner Yeda, for your leadership at the SEC. I um, <clears throat> I have a question about the full, the rule that was uh, recently finalized that made amendments to Form NPX. Uh, it requires um, new categories, including a, a new category called other social issues. Uh, for proxy voting to be disclosed. Um, and in o other social issues, it specifically says lobbying or political contributions. Um, do you think that this is potentially in conflict with uh, uh, a appropriations rider that's been enacted since 2015 that explicitly prohibits the SEC from disclosing, requiring disclosure of lobbying, political contributions, and contributions to nonprofits? Well, thank you for that question. Um, it's, you know, this is something that I also had a, had a similar reaction and had similar qu that question pop into my mind. Um, so we, this is a, a writer that I think we've been, this commission's been subject to for about five or six, maybe even more years um, for a long period of time, which says that we can't finalize, adopt, or implement any, any rule uh, with respect to disclosure of political contributions, as well as I think it also contributions to tax exempt entities and, and uh, dues to trade associations. Uh, so this is something that, when we did have that open meeting a couple weeks ago, I posed to our general counsel's office. Because uh, you know, the language on its face says, regarding any disclosure of political contributions. And so, um, to me, that, 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 that at least on the face of it was broad. And, and so our general counsel's office provided their opinion at that open meeting. Uh, and um, it's, I don't think it's part of the transcript, but if. Uh, you go to our website at some point. Um, I know a replay will be open. Uh, I know they need to do a couple of things to that. I'm not quite sure if it's up, to, up on our website right now. Um, I, there are some requirements that we have to do to make sure it's equally accessible to everybody. Um, 
they give an explanation as to why, at least from the SEC's perspective, um, it is it does not run afoul of that now. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you all see for yourself if you find their, their opinion to be convincing or not. Thank you. Hi, I'm Janice Walt Grenadier. I launched Judicialpedia about a year ago. And what we're noticing is people are filing complaints with the SEC over Aquin slash PHH. Um, they have some insider trading that was reported that of uh, 4 million units that they paid 12 million for and there was a 304 million profit um, to the insiders. Leon Cooperman owned 10%. My question is, how are whistleblowers um, who are making these um, complaints to the SEC and when they call in, they're being ignored? How can we help you in helping the American public get some justice over this stuff. Well, first off, let me say, you know, we've got a whistleblower program in place um, and shown tremendous results, um, oftentimes creating um, information that we otherwise would not have received. Uh, one of the things, though, with our enforcement program, uh, as well as our exam program, is that uh, we can't publicly disclose sort of anything about that until we ultimately come to perhaps some sort of enforcement action. So I think it's, I, I empathize with, with those who file complaints because, at least on the surface, because of the internal requirements that there be uh, non-disclosure of what's going on. Um, and in part, that's not only to protect the integrity of the investigation, but also for people who are potentially subject to these investigations that, um, that to the, especially to the extent they are found not liable or no violation, it turns out, has occurred, uh, um, that, that their reputations are not besmirched. Um, so I empathize with, with, with the, the, um, the frustration that from the outside, you don't know what's happening. It just seems like a black box. Uh, based on the large number of enforcement cases that I see uh, every week, um, it, it's clear that things are happening. Uh, now, I can't may not be with every tip that comes in, because some of them just don't pan out, but there is a, a, there is a very robust uh, set of activity coming with our, our um, enforcement efforts. Uh, so I would say if individuals do have concerns that the securities laws have been violated, uh, we have something called our tips, complaints, and referrals part on our, our, our website. Um, you can file it with, with that, uh, and that's also there's also additional information because uh, it is, there are certain, like many government agencies, there are financial incentives that you might, a person could be eligible for, but you need to make sure you go through the right process and, and file the right things. Uh, so I'd encourage anyone who thinks that they have information like that, 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 that they can file that with us. Uh, thank you. Um, what uh, data is the uh, SEC collecting and publishing with regard to uh, uh, ESG-related uh, uh, proxy requests and so forth and, and uh, actual um, votes by uh, at shareholder meetings that in one way or another deal with uh, uh, ESG matters? Uh, to put this question another way, how, how active 
our, our shareholders in terms of uh, pushing on or questioning uh, ESG activities by publicly held corporations? So we, yeah, we, we collect a lot of data, and you know, part of the question is, is what's the data being used for, and how is it, how is it compiled? Um, you know, the first question was just asked about uh, a, a matter we took, uh, voted on a couple weeks ago, which would increase the amount of information available by uh, mutual funds. Um, right now, uh, they file the reports with us. It's in either HTML or, um, uh, in some cases, I think even ASCII. Uh, so it's very hard to to look at some of that that data and to find it. We one of the changes that are, is being made is to now make it what we call interactive data, so it'd be easier to search. So we get that information. In addition, if you are a holder of a particular company, uh, that company after the the um, annual meeting is held, they need to file on our, our system called EDGAR, our electronic data uh, reporting system. Uh, they need to f say, here are the, what happened, at, here are the items that were on the agenda for the meeting, and here is what the final votes were for and against, and to spell all that out. Uh, so those are parts, I'm not aware offhand if we sort of produce aggregate data on that or classifications. Um, you know, I, I think it's, we now have this rule which at least on the fund side does require classifications among different types, whether it's governance related or environmental related. Uh, so it's possible we, to, to probably generate more information on that, but that won't be implemented until uh, the summer of 2004. Um, right now it's the implementation schedule. And if you're willing to take one more question. Sure. Um, I have a question from Richard Q in our online audience. He asks, does the recent Supreme Court decision in West Virginia v. EPA cast doubt on the ability of the SEC to branch out into policymaking, like the climate disclosure rule or other ESG topics? Well, I think that's the, the million or, or billion dollar question. Um, you know, you, you have, uh, uh, I, certainly everybody at the agency is aware of, of the West Virginia case. Um, and then there's also our, our statutory authority, which is, in essence, says we can require it if it's in the public interest and for the protection of investors. And there's a lot of questions as to what what exactly does that mean. Um, you know, my, my broad perspective on, on our rulemaking, when it comes to disclosure, is it all goes back to financial materiality. Uh, does this affect what the company's valuation is? Does this affect uh, what uh, the stock price is? Now, that's not. There is a, a legal test uh, set forth in a couple of Supreme Court cases, uh, Basic v. Levinson, TSC Industries versus Northway, which you know, I look at as very important as to what is materiality. Um, but that is going to be, you know, I think there's been robust debate. What exactly does West Virginia and EPA mean on, on, the, on uh, the SEC's rulemaking? Um, it's certainly an argument uh, uh, that I will need to be addressed. Um, those who have concerns about uh, the, uh, uh, what the SEC is doing here. Uh, I know there are other arguments out there as well that you know, are not reliant solely on the uh, statutory authority question. Thank you very much, Commissioner Ueda.